Amen. Open up your Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. For those of you that are here for the first time, just, uh, just so you know that we've been going through the books of the Bible systematically for the last 10 years or so. And uh, it's, it's a practice that I kind of started doing on a regular basis. And we, you know, we took a couple of years to go through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Romans was a very long book as well and uh, took us a few years to get to that. And we went through Galatians in a few months and now we're in the book of Ephesians. And, and one of the things about going through the book systematically is we come across some things that uh, are kind of difficult to grasp or to take hold of or to even to understand. And today is going to be one of those days. It's, it, and, it's, and it's only difficult because we make it difficult. And before I get started on this, just to let you know, this is an issue that has been plaguing the church for centuries. This is not something brand new that you are dealing with or that anybody else is dealing with. This is something that's been going on for a very long time. And there's basically two camps. There may be you know, three or four camps, but bottom line, there's basically two camps. The one camp is called Armenianism. Armenianism states that you can save yourself. It is up to you to respond to the gospel message. And when you respond to the gospel message, you get saved. And the other camp is called Calvinism. Calvinism means the, uh, uh, or the, the, the process or the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. Now, before I get started, and I've, I've made this disclaimer many times before, I'm not a Calvinist. I've never called myself a Calvinist. I, I've read some of Calvin, John Calvin's material. But, you know, it's just, I'm a Christian. If I'm going to call myself anything, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what I am. And so, but when I started to see this, oh, 12 years ago, I didn't go looking for it. It just kind of popped out of uh, some of the verses that I've had written, read before. And, and especially the verse in chapter 3, verse 10 of Romans. Romans 3.10 says that there's no one who seeks after God. There's no one righteous. No one. And one of the things that we were doing is we developed a church that was called a seeker-sensitive church. A church that is designed to help people that are seeking God. And the problem was is that when I encountered this verse, and it wasn't the first time I've read this, it's just it's the first time I read it in this manner. That there's no one who seeks after God. And then I started to realize that we're all sinners, that none of us want anything to do with God. And we'll see a little bit about that today and the next week and the following week. Especially about those who are dead in their trespasses. A dead person cannot make can, and cannot respond to anything that takes place. A, a dead person is dead, dead, dead. The EMTs don't come up to him and ask him, okay, would you like for us to bring you back to life? Would you like for us to administer the uh, defibrillators to, to, to paddle you back to life? A person is dead. The EMT jumps on him and he does so because he knows that's what he needs. In the same manner, when God created the heavens and the earth and he said it's good, he created man. He took man and he formed him out of dust. People, we are mud people. We are dirt people. And he took us and that dirt person, that mud clay person that was just there, was able to understand, was not able to understand anything until God breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. That mud person could not say, okay, Lord, I'll go ahead and accept you. I'll go ahead and receive that, that breath that you're going to give me. And in this whole process and, and rethinking that theology and rethinking how salvation happens, 
Now, the free will camp and the predestination camp, there are two camps that seem to fight with each other. And I don't want to cause a division or a stir. But because we have grown up in this progressive evangelicalism in the past few years and, and how this pragmatist type of thinking where it doesn't matter what, uh, what we do or how we say it, but the ends justify the means. We want full buildings. We want lots of people here. And so we're going to do everything we can to not offend. We're going to have music. We're going to have sermons that don't preach on hell. We're not going to talk about sin and, you know, in those types of things. The bad thing was that through the book of Galatians, that's all it was. <laughs> the book of Galatians kept talking about people, you're sinners. You're going after a different gospel, a gospel that just does not make sense. You're saved by grace, not by works. And the, the point is, is that a lot of people understand that we're saved by grace. It's only God that can save us. And we say it's nothing we can do. We can't earn it. We can't, we can't buy it. There's nothing we can do for that salvation. Yet, when it comes to the actual part of salvation, that's when we start having a problem. Who initiates salvation? Do I initiate salvation? Okay, Lord. All right, there you are. I'm finally going to give up. And, you know, you've been after me all these years. And all this. Okay, I'm finally just going to Okay, I'm done. And it's as if God is up there wondering, okay, I wonder if today's going to be the day that's... I just wonder if he's going to... Today's going to be the day... Ah, you didn't do it again. All right, well, maybe tomorrow. Or maybe the next day. And so there's the tension. There's the, the problem that we have. Where does salvation take place? And I want to walk you through that in the next several weeks as to how that happens in our life. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic and to say you have to believe this. I want to walk you through this and show you what the Bible teaches. As uh, we have, I have said many times before, I can show you where you know the Bible teaches on predestination. You were chosen. You were elected. You were. You were. Jesus even said, "You didn't choose me. I chose you." And the indication, one of the greatest indications that you can probably say that God chose you is that you're here. Not just here in this church, you know, I mean, I have nothing special but the Word of God, which is highly special. And we have a high view of God's Word, and we take it for, for what it is and not for granted. But the fact that you are wanting and desiring this relationship with a being that you know has created you, and, and with all the voices that are out there, you're trying to find what it is that God is doing in your heart. Because the moment that he opens your heart, he gives you Man. the ability to repent. Man. I couldn't for the life of me, for all my 30 years of, as I was a young man, I couldn't repent myself. I tried. I tried and I tried and I tried. I was sick and tired and sick and tired of being sick and tired. And there was nothing that I can do until something supernatural happened within my life. It was God that changed my life, not me. I tried by my own willpower. I tried by my own uh, abilities and my own strength. And, and, and I, I, I tried to change. And I quit drinking. I quit drugs. I quit smoking. I quit doing all those things that I used to do. And, and, and even though that was done, I still had a sin problem. I still had a problem with sin in my life. And one of the things that we find in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3. Nicodemus, well, let's go there. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3 very quickly. In John chapter 3, verses 1, there's a Pharisee that comes to Jesus at night. 
Okay? Yeah. His name is Nicodemus. Yeah. We call this Nick at night. Yeah. I, I waited all week just to share that with you. Oh, now you're not laughing with me. You're laughing at me. Okay. Oh, Let's get back to the Word of God, right? So Nick comes to Jesus at night. You're still laughing at me. <laughs> now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Amen. Now notice this. Never did he ask what happens to me when I die? Never did he ask, how do I get to heaven? Yeah. Never does he ask how he's already assuming that because he's a Pharisee, he's a Jew, he's got it, he's got it made, and God has already chosen him and, and everything is set. But Jesus answers like this in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus goes on later on to say, how's a man born again? You know, how's that happen? You know, am I have to enter my mother's womb and come back out again? You must be born again. As you have and we have, we've talked about this before. You know, being born again is the, is, is the term that we use a lot. It's regeneration. To be regenerated, to generate, to make new. A new creation. And that birth, that spiritual birth, just like your physical birth, Jesus is talking about being born again. And it's, I, it's very keen of Jesus using this analogy. Because just like your birth, you had no contribution to your birth. You had no contribution to when you were going to be born, how you were going to be born, to whom you were going to be born. God saw this couple and said, these are the two people that I'm going to bring you into this world with. And you were born, and that's what Jesus Christ is getting across. Because he goes on to say later, you must be born of spirit and water. And this regeneration, this, this miraculous miracle that happens within you, has to come at none of your contribution. This is why Paul says, and we'll read this as we go through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not by works, but it's a gift of God. You have nothing to do with the salvation. Now, I know it's sounding kind of, okay, uh, well, I thought I was the one that raised my hand. I thought I was the one, and we're going to go through all of this here in just a bit. There's a lot of information that we'll have to cover, because it's just not in this verse. Let's read that together. I'm just going to read verses 4 and 6 of Ephesians. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 6. And it says here, where did he go? Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved in which he has blessed us, he chose us, and we are adopted because of what he has done. Father in heaven, thank you for that truth. That truth is just so, 
It sounds so amazing. And I can stand here and I can, I, I, I can doubt and I can, I can say, why, Lord? After all I've said, after all I've done, the places I've been, the things I've seen, why would you pick a person like me? Why is it that I'm chosen? How is that even possible, Lord? Because I know that I am a vile, wicked sinner. And I know, God, that, that your word is true. And if this resonates within the hearts of any of the hearers, the listeners that are within the sound of my voice, I know, God, that you are working and you've worked and done that work in them from the foundations of the world. And so, Father, help us to get a grasp on that. How is that ever possible? How can that be? So thank you, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, as we were practicing our songs, that song I love quite a bit is, When I wake up in the land of glory, with the saints I will tell my story. There is only one name that I'll proclaim. After we finish singing that song, I mean, you understand what it says, right? When I wake up in the land of glory, right? Okay, you understand what that means. I mean, it's kind of, it's not direct, but when I die and go to heaven, I'll be there. When, when, when we finished singing, my, my grandson was here, he's only eight years old. When we finished singing, he said, that's a sad song, Grandpa. I go, what? Because that's a very sad song. Why is it sad? Because uh, it just sounds sad. What, what makes it sound? It sounds like a funeral song. I go, a funeral song? Right, James? He, he says, it sounds like a funeral. What do you mean it sounds like? Well, yeah, it just makes me sad just to think about it. And I'm trying to get to the... What is he talking about? And it was that phrase, when I wake up in the land of glory. Now, I don't, trying to say that my grandson is, you know, I don't know how he got that out of that, but he did. Personally, I think there is the spirit that is working within him, the calling that is happening within his life, that when it comes to the time, the predestination, the understanding of God's word. Some of you are going to leave here today saying, you know, that made a lot of sense. That's the Holy Spirit making it sense in your heart that makes and some of you are like you know you're you're just agreeing with me you know you're i know you're agreeing with me okay so i'll just take it that you're agreeing with me like when you start snoring i know okay well maybe but but you know when you hear the holy spirit just prick your heart see god is opening your heart in, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is talking to the people and he's talking to all these Gentiles. And, and, he, and, and then all of a sudden the Bible says there was a woman that was there and, the, and God opened her heart. You know, one of the things that we use in evangelism, and I've used this before, is Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, where God is knocking on the heart of your door. He's knocking and he wants to come in. You see, if you open up the heart of your door, if you receive Jesus Christ, if you do the work... If you do the work, then Jesus Christ will save you. But that verse has nothing to do with salvation, has nothing to do with, with uh, regeneration, has nothing to do, it's not talking to a reprobate, a person that is totally lost, a dead individual in their sin. It's talking to the church. And it's used out of context. And I've used it out of context. And people come forward and say, well, I opened my heart, and yet life hasn't changed. Well, I said the prayer, well, and life hasn't changed. Beloved, the sinner's prayer, if you know what that is, the sinner's prayer has never changed an individual. That's all works. 
The sinner's prayer is sometimes mimicked or re, re, uh, repeated or copied in, from, a, from a, a book or something, a page, and it's read. And once a person reads it or they repeat it from somebody else, then all of a sudden they say, okay, well, I, I guess I'm saved. I said the prayer. I, I even came forward. I even, I even said, you, you know, God, please forgive me. I've done all that. And some of you are probably saying, but I got saved that way. No, no, you got saved in spite of that way. Because it's the Holy Spirit that opens up your heart. And when the Holy Spirit opens up your heart, you see, what starts to happen is the Holy Spirit resides in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, The man without the Spirit cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. They are spiritually discerned. Those things do not make sense. And when you start reading God's word, when you start hearing God's word, and you start looking at God's word, and it starts to make sense, the Holy Spirit has opened your heart, and the word of God is alive in you, and your response is what Jesus says, repent. I'm not going to ask you to receive. I'm not going to beg you to raise your hand. We're not going to play music to try to get people to to fall down and come forward. All I'm going to, it's not even a suggestion. Jesus Christ said, repent. It's a command. It's a command that we ought to repent when the gospel message is proclaimed. Repent. And then he says, and believe. And I cannot repent until God opens my heart. You cannot see the kingdom of God, as he was telling Nicodemus. You cannot even enter without being born again. You cannot get saved until the Holy Spirit opens your heart. You know, and, and... when, you, when the Holy Spirit opens your heart, yeah. the things that start to happen, and this is what happens to a lot of us. The Holy Spirit opens your heart, and, and you have this understanding of God's holiness. Oh my God, I, I've, I've messed up. Yes, you have. Man, I, I've offended a holy God. Yes, you have. You know, I, I can't even stand in front of God. Yes, you cannot. In his Isaiah's case, when he was in Isaiah chapter 6, he goes into the temple, and the train of God's robe it wasn't even God himself. It was just the train, his clothes, his, his appearance, his glory. And Isaiah fell down as if dead. And he says, I'm undone. In other words, I'm unraveling here because I'm, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to get zapped because I know, he says, that I am a man of unclean lips. And on top of that, I live amongst the people that are of unclean lips. I think maybe he might have lived in San Bernardino. I don't know. They were just wicked people. And he recognized that when you come face to face with God, when you come face to face with his word, when you come face to face with the holiness of God, your first reaction should be, boom, I'm dead. Have mercy upon me, Lord. I know that many people, pastors and some other folks have written books about this encounter that they've had with Jesus and, and how God has taken them up to heaven. And, and you know, and, and we're all just friends and kumbaya and singing songs and playing catch or whatever the case may be. Beloved, when you see God, every time a person had an encounter with God, they fell on their face. They knew that they were undone. Every time that God showed up in a theophany with Jesus Christ, every time that Jesus showed up. Anytime the Holy Spirit, people had an encounter and they fell to the ground. Case in point, Peter is out fishing with his friends. 
And it's early in the morning. They've been fishing all night. And they come out and Jesus is on the side of the shore. And, and he says to them, friends, cast your net on the other side. And Peter looks around and says, look, man, we've been fishing all night. We're the fishermen. You're the carpenter. Yeah. You go do your carpenter thing and we'll do our fisherman thing. Yeah. And then he says, but because you say so, just, just to show you that we've been all up and down this lake. They throw their net over and they hauled up this huge catch of fish. First thing Peter did is he fell down and he says, depart from me. Because nothing or no one could do such a miracle unless he was in the presence of God. He was in the presence of holiness and he says, depart from me. God's holiness will open up your heart and your first reaction is going to be to get away. Your first reaction is not to come back. Your first reaction is, you know, I am a sinner. I know my sin. I know what I've done. It's like the pastor is talking directly to me. That's the Holy Spirit, not me. He's convicting you of your sin. And he knows that you are a sinner. He knows that I'm a sinner. And that sin is going to send people to an everlasting damnation. You know, people have said, well, you know, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. He loves the sinner. You know, the, the unfortunate thing, it's the sinner that he sends to hell with the sin. If there is no repentance, that is a command. And this is why it's a command. You must repent. Repent, Peter would say to the people. Paul says, repent, he would tell them. Get away from what you were doing and look toward God and follow him. And you repent and you move forward in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And this all happens instantaneously. God opens your heart. You repent. You're born again. See, a lot of people think that, well, you know, I'm, I'm born again first and then I can repent. Or I, I am, first of all, I'm saved and then I believe. I have to receive and then I can believe. No, you, God gives you the belief. God gives you the faith. God gives you. And we're going to go through some scriptures of, on that here in just a bit. And as we go through life, you recognize the closer you get to God, yeah. the more that you, your sin is exposed. And the more that your sin is exposed, the more you want to stay away. But that's what God's work what he's doing is sanctification, sanctifying you, purifying you, cleansing you, removing all that guilt and shame and, and all that stuff that you've been holding on to. Thinking that you're, not wor you're worthless, thinking that you've messed up, thinking that you cannot make this life. And what God wants to do is show you, yes, see everything that happens to you, everything, good and the bad, it's all for his purpose. It's all for his purpose. Let me ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, one of the first verses that we're going to be looking at in Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We will provide one for you. But we'd like for you to have a Bible. And if uh, you want to just, just get one, you know, for the baptisms, we give them out. That's a nice little Bible. I like it. Right? <laughs> I'm going to go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This portion of scripture is kind of used out of context many times. And we use it out of context all the time. In verse 28, it says this. And we know that for those who, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. 
You got to love God first. Before you can, all these things can work together for good, your love for God has got to be solid. Now, when you take this verse out of context, we say, okay, all this bad stuff, which is true, you know, it's going to come out for good. Okay, I'm going to get a better job. I'm probably, you know, uh, I lost a, lo- a loved one. I'm, I'm going to replace that or replenish that. I, I've financial crisis. You know, God, it's, it's all going to work out for good. My health, it's all going to work out for good. Eventually, something's going to happen. Something better is coming up down the road. But when you look at this verse in its context, you got to go back up to verse 18. The future glory. And it's entitled future, in my Bible, it's entitled future glory. And, it's, and that's not that the Apostle Paul entitled this portion of scripture to future glory. That's just what the, the translators had got out of this when they were translating the word of God. And when they translated it from the, the, the Greek into the English, they said, you know, this is talking about the future glory. And he says here, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with persistence or patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. What is His purpose? His purpose is to get us to glory. What is His purpose? God's purpose, not my purpose. You see, I read this verse, and all things work together for good for my purpose, for the things I'm going to get, for how things are going to work out for me, how things are going to work out for my family, my job, everything else. These are God's purposes. And God's purpose... And God's purpose is spelled out to us in the next few verses. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Our part in this whole thing, the purpose of God is to create for himself a holy body, a holy church for his son, Jesus Christ. And we know that all these things work together for good. Well, for the good of what? Well, for the good of the glory that we're going to receive. And and this golden chain of salvation, this golden chain of salvation that is here in in, in the book of Romans, is spelled out in many other places as well. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, when we look at other verses like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that's the verse that we looked at here just a little bit ago. That he chose us before the world even began. Before the time even started, he says, these are the ones I am going to choose before the foundations of the world. In Ephesians 1.9, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. These are things that he did long ago. In verse 11, we will read, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In 2 Thessalonians, you might want to write these down because I don't have them up there if you, if you want to follow, follow up on these. But in 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 2, verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Over and over again, Paul is sharing with us that you have been called, you have been chosen, you have been predestined. And over and over again, in many of these verses that we can go through, as a matter of fact, Jesus himself said, you, you didn't choose me, I chose you. From the very beginning, God, is, God has been a God that chooses. He chose the Jewish nation of Israel. He says, I didn't choose you because you were plentiful. As a matter of fact, there was only one. There was only one of you when I chose you. And I knew I was going to make a nation out of you. As a matter of, when Esau and Jacob were born, uh, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose the younger, not the older. Yeah. Esau I hated, Jacob I loved. Yeah. Why did he do that? This is God who he does. He, he chooses who he wants. And how he does that, well, we're going to get into that. But why he does that, that's the mystery. Why is it that he chose me? Why is it that he chose you? And when we look at the calling that God has given us, this is not a ministerial calling. In the epistles, it's not a ministerial calling. In, in the gospels, yes, you'll get a calling for a job or a responsibility or an office that Jesus Christ has called you in. But mainly in the epistles, when we're talking about a calling, it's the efficacious call, meaning the salvation call. You're called unto salvation. And that's part of the golden chain that we'll look at here in just a little bit. But over and over again, we are looking at how it is that we are called by God. You see, in Romans chapter 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. As a non-believer, as a non-believer people, we don't love God. We don't seek after God. But you're saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I know some people that it seems like God is working in their life. And, and they're seeking God. And they're looking as if God is lost. And they're looking for God. They want this peace of God. They want this guilt removed by God. They want that shame that God can only take away. They want this transformation inside their life. And it was, uh, I believe it was Augustine many years ago. Charles Spurgeon pretty much said it the same way. He says, you know, it's not that people want God. What they want is the benefits of God. They want what God offers. 
They want, everybody wants to go to heaven. I mean, even our fallen world is trying to get to a paradise, a nirvana. We all want this peace in our life. We all want this guilt that we carry around us because of our sin, because of the things that we've done. Or we want this shame removed from our life because of things that have been done to us. We want happiness. We want joy in our life. We don't want a messed up family. We, we, and those are the benefits of God. And beloved, those things can come to you by reading all kinds of self-help books. I, I guess you can. But my problem, your problem, is my sin that keeps me away from God. You see, many people want to get to heaven, but they just don't want God to be there. They don't want to be told that they have to sacrifice their life. They have to give up their freedom, supposedly. They don't want to give up their friends. They don't want to give up their lifestyle. Just give me the good stuff and leave me alone. Don't expect me to come to church. Don't expect me to get involved. Don't expect me to do anything. See, a person that has been regenerated, born again, desires to please God. Desires to serve God. Desires to come in fellowship with God's family. Desires that longing that, that there's something missing and I'm finding it in God's word. That is a regenerated believer. But people that just want their habits or their life changed and that's it. Well, you, the Bible says that we're enemies. We're hostile to God. We're dead to our sins. We are dead to our trespasses. For we know, and I'm just going to be able to get to the first one today. Number one. In verse 29 of Romans 8. In verse 29 it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For those he foreknew, there is this word that is there that tells us, okay, there is this foreknowledge, this foreunderstanding, this foreordination. And this foreknowledge is the way most people read this. Uh, you know, and it's, it's important to understand that it might mean that God has foresight, which he does. God has foresight, right? Amen? God knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows who's going to get saved. You know, he knows who's not going to get saved. He knows that. Whether he does anything or not, whether he allows you to get saved by yourself or that he predestines you to get saved, God knows who that's going to be. Amen? And there's nothing that you can change that. God knows the beginning to the end. And so what some people say is that, okay, God has this foreknowledge. And this foreknowledge that God has, he's able to go, go down the quarters of history and look to see, okay, these are the ones that are getting saved. And then he comes right back over here and says, okay, those are the ones I predestined. Those are the ones that I've chosen because I know that they're going to make a choice for me. Which sounds pretty good. It's, 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 it's okay. But the problem with that doctrine is a very serious problem. That man, uh, and, and we come from this camp Ourselves, We understand that we're wicked. Man is wicked. Yeah, we are. We're ignorant. We're blind, the Bible says. We're unable to understand the truth. Unable to understand the gospel. Unable to comprehend God. Unable to get past my iniquity who hates God. And is an enemy of God. And scripture tells us over and over again that we love our wickedness. That we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't make a decision for God. The problem with that 
premise that God knows and so therefore he comes back is that those that believe that's our thinking, well, he, me, Sal, can make that decision because that's what's going to happen. Because he has the ability to make that decision. None of us do. None of us have that ability. When the fall took place, we started to run from God as far as possible. And we come back when we get hurt or we want certain things, but we keep running away and we keep running away. And once everything gets situated and, you know, things are set in place and we keep running away, we do our own thing. We don't submit to God. We don't sacrifice uh, our lives for him. We don't serve him. We don't honor him. We don't, you know, sometimes we even blaspheme him. And the problem with this idea or this thought that God has foreknowledge, which he does, and that he sees who's going to select and which he can't. Man is dead in his trespasses. Uh, another way of looking at this is, is uh, you know, the, the thinking that, that he is able to, to change his own, his own lifestyle. And as I mentioned, as Nicodemus, you know, you can't. Salvation comes like in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says to the people in Philippi, for it has been granted to you. Yeah. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God granted it to you to believe in him. He gave you the ability to uh, believe in him. Now, let me just take you to another spot. This foreknowledge, this foreordination, this foreunderstanding is, is true. He has this understanding. But when you look at this word in its, in its context and how it's supposed to come across and what we're supposed to get from it, you see, Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world. And, and, and so it kind of puts a little hiccup on us. In, in 1 Peter 1.20, he says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Even though Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, boom, God already had this foreknowledge or foreknown. And it's more than information. It's more than knowing where you are. See, God knew where Jesus Christ was at all the time. He had this, not only this foreknowledge, understanding, but when you look at the word know in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve had sinned, it came out of the garden, the Bible says that Adam knew his wife and bore him a child. And then Cain himself, the Bible says that Cain knew his wife and bore him Enoch. Abraham knew uh, his wife, Sarah, and she became uh, pre pregnant. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ is, is born and, and he has been uh, given to Mary to, so that Mary can bear this child, the Son of God, Joseph was going to put her aside in a divorce silently because he didn't want to bring any shame to the family. The Holy Spirit came up to him. The angel came up to him and says, oh, no, no, this is what needs to take place. And his thinking was, but I've never known her. How is it that she, you know, it's not me. How is this going to happen? Because he did not know her. This intimate relationship of foreknowledge, when you look at this word from this foreknowledge standpoint, when you look at this word understanding that this foreknowledge that God has of us, that God has had from the very beginning, this foreknowledge is the foreknowledge of foreknowing, 
of what it is that he knows and how he knows us. But if anyone, look at, look at this verse in your outline, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, what does it say there? He is known by God. When you love God, God loves you back. And he, you love him because he's the one that first and foremost loved you. From a standpoint of cognition, you don't have to love God to be information. God knows everyone. He knows everything. And from an understanding of getting to know him, like face to face, but this knowing God, once you, once you love God, you love him because he loves you. He knows you. He has this intimate relationship with you. And it's interesting because we'll see here in just a bit. Well, not today, but we'll see here in these verses that this has been going on since the foundation of the world. This has been going on from the very beginning. In, in Matthew chapter 7, some of you probably know this verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, let me pause there for a moment. Because there are a lot of people that come to church and say, Lord, Lord, hey, how you doing? You know, everything's going good. And then he says, then Jesus says, but the one who does, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, he goes on to say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not preach and teach and share your word with people in your name? Did we cast out demons in your did we do that? Did, in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your did we do all those things? And, and the, the point that I'm trying to make here is this: there are a lot of people, and this is what the Bible teaches. There are a lot of people that are in the church that are doing these things for their own self-glory, either for the, the funds, the money, for their, for their professionalism, for their own power, whatever the case may be. They're doing it for themselves. And God allows that to happen. And God knows who they are because at the end times, many of them are going to come up and say, oh yeah, Jesus, we did all these things. We worked for our salvation. We worked it out. And, and we did good. Problem is that the Bible says there's no one good. And here's what he's going to say at the end. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. I never had this intimate relationship with you. What you were doing was out there. See, I have an intimate relationship with those that are desiring me, that are following me. But you guys, I never had that relationship with you. I didn't and I won't. We, we studied in Galatians chapter 4 when we were going through Galatians verse 9 again in your outlines. It says, but now that you have come to know God, you have this intimate relationship with God or rather to be known by God. This is more than information. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? See, you have this intimate relationship. You know God. He knows you. In John chapter 10, one of my favorite verses, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and I know my own. And my own, they know me. Once again, it's more than just cognitive information. It's more than just understanding, you know, okay, there he is. Oh, I didn't know him. Okay, I'm glad to know you now. No, 
It's this intimate relationship. Once again, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone whose name, the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. And let, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let me read that again. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Iniquity is sin. Iniquity is the things that we do in our life. Once you have this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, once you have this intimate relationship with God, once you start knowing who He is, then it's, as I said earlier, we recognize God's holiness. And I want to get away from sin. As a matter of fact, I want to get away from the holiness because I know I'm going to get zapped. But see, that's where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. From this foreknowledge, he predestined you. And from that predestined, he chose you. Proorizo is like the word where we get the word horizon. He set a boundary around you. You are mine. I want this relationship to be with you. Now I'm going to call you. And because you're already mine, I'm going to call you and you're going to respond and you need to repent. Repentance is the key, not the verse, not the, uh, the sinner's prayer. Repentance is the key. You change the way you think. We'll be talking about the changing of our lifestyle. Some of you have already started that. Some of you have already been distancing yourself away from the things of this world. Some of you are starting to recognize that i got to distance myself even more so. But it is through the Word of God that we understand what it is that we ought to do and how we ought to walk. If you'd like to have a better understanding of that, in Galatians chapter 5, we just went through this a few weeks ago. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore I say, walk by the Spirit, so you do not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You see, the sinful nature, it automatically does what it wants to do. It causes divisions. It causes rivalries. It, 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 it seeks after sexual immorality. It seeks after debauchery. It seeks after the things that the world wants to do. But he says, I want you to walk in the Spirit. And the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, See those nine characteristics of one fruit. Those nine characteristics, many of you have been praying for them. Many of you have been praying for patience, self-control. Many of you have been praying for love. Many of you have been praying. Some of you have been praying for goodness, gentleness. You know, I need to be a more gentle person, a, a good person. I need to, you know, and all these things. Once the Holy Spirit resides in you and you're walking in these things, it just automatically just comes out of you. It oozes out of you, just like when you put, squeeze the toothpaste. What comes out is that what's ever inside. But when you walk not in the Spirit, you're gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. Our problem, beloved, is that we have a dual nature in the sense. We have the, the old nature, the sinful nature, and we have the fruit of the Spirit. And when we, we cannot operate on both of them. You either operate on one or the other. And coming to church on Sunday morning is good, but it is not sufficient. You need a dose every morning of God's Word. You need prayer as you're walking through, through life. You need to look at how it is that you can expound more on love. How can I be more loving? 
how can I get this peace? How can I express that peace in this stressful situation? How do I exhibit self-control? Patience. Many of you are praying for patience. And there's this old adage that we've said before, don't pray for patience, because God will give you some very impatient things to test your patience, to build your patience up. You know all these traffic problems that we're having on the freeways, on the 215, the 15, and some of your guys' faults. We're praying for patience. Stop it! Just learn how to be patient. You already got it. It's because of you. You know those long lines that we have at the bank or the grocery store? Some people, oh, Lord, give me patience. Okay, I'll show you how to work your patience out. Makes the longs liner. Stop it! <laughs> I want to get through there. And even the 15-item checkout stand is backed up. So I just, all right, okay, Lord. I guess I'm having to work on patience today. Amen. You have that in you already. When you become, when God opens up your heart, the Holy Spirit comes in. He's given you the full dose. Now, this might be the first time you've heard this, or you may have heard it before. You might be a brand new believer or just starting off, but it is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to live this life. Man. Not self-control, not self-help books, but God's Holy Spirit. Amen. When we come to understand that God already knew us, and when we come to understand that He's foreordained us, He's predestined us. He's called us. He's justified us. He's made us right. And then He's going to glorify us. Glorification is the ultimate goal of God's plan. His purpose is to make us like His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's when we end up in glory. That's the glorification. That's the process. Foreknowledge. Predestination. Calling. Justification. Glorification. And as we go through these in the next few weeks, I pray that you can understand that once God has you, He's marked out His boundary around you, you can't never lose that. He picked you out from the very beginning. From the very beginning of time. So what makes you think you're going to lose that? He's already set you out. As a matter of fact, if you look at this verse, what just I'm going to close with this. Seriously. <laughs> They're laughing because they know, okay, when I say that, that's not necessarily true. But no, seriously. And those whom he, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's past tense. We're not even there yet. We, we haven't even been to the glory yet. We haven't even been to glory. But he's already talking about it as, as if it's already happened because it has. Beloved, that's why all things work together for good for you. Because you're already in glory. The only thing that is holding us back is this flesh. Yeah. I can't see it. But you know what? This is not a pep talk. This is not a, a motivational speech. This is the word of God. And if God said it, I believe it. And that settles it. Whether I believe it or not, <laughs> that settles it. Amen. Let me ask you to stand. Many of you are thinking, okay, well, what about the part where I need to come forward and, and, and make that prayer? Well, you, you know, you need to make a commitment. It needs to be a public commitment. That public commi commitment happens at baptism.
When, you, when God opens up your heart, places His Spirit in your heart, in your life, you start to see the change. The very first thing you need to do is get baptized. Man. That's the first obedience. Man. Jesus said, when, when, uh, when Matthew was writing the book of Matthew, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has come upon me. He said, therefore go and baptize. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. A disciple is a believer. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. A disciple is an apprentice. Go and make disciples. We have many disciples here. All those that follow Jesus Christ were disciples. Out of those, he pulled out 12 and called apostles. But he says, go and make disciples. And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The very first thing that happens is we make disciples. New believers. Those that are willing to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. We baptize them to show their public profession on Jesus. And, and publicly, you're stating, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's a symbol. It's a very important symbol. It's a symbol, just like my, just like my wedding ring that I should be wearing. I, I left it home. <laughs> just, that doesn't make me unmarried, right? I'm still married. But it's a very important symbol that I couldn't get it on my finger this morning and I forgot it. Don't tell my wife. Uh, it's a very important symbol. Just like your baptism is a very important symbol. It shows that you are a believer. It doesn't get you saved. doesn't make you better. doesn't you know, fix you up and wash away all your sins. Jesus has already done that. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the third thing he says, then teach them. And some of you have been trying to figure out, you've made that profession of faith. You've committed your life to Christ. You've gone to church. And, and, and somehow it's just not, you know, well, maybe I'm not saved. Well, maybe you just haven't followed Jesus Christ in the first obedient act that he asked you to do. To obey and to be baptized. And then I can teach you. And then you can be taught. And then you teach them all these things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. Amen. This is why we stress baptism. It doesn't save you. It's a symbol, important symbol. Amen. And it's a symbol that shows the world, I am a believer. I'm not perfect. Amen. As a matter of fact, ever, never ever say that you're perfect. What we say is that we are wretched sinners. Saved by grace. We are wretched sinners. We are sinners that have been saved by grace, not by works. And now I owe God the rest of my life. And Father, I thank you for that blood that was shed on the cross uh, that Jesus Christ shed for us. I thank you for the, just, just the greatness of, of what that all means. And how this verse right here, the blessings and the riches of your blessing that we're starting to see in this book of Ephesians. And how it is that your grace is such a huge blessing, such a huge richness, and, and so full of, of just understanding that we are secured in your love, not because of what we do, but because of what you do. Amen. And Lord, I pray for those hearts that are opened even now, that your Holy Spirit start to make that change within their life. I pray, God, that that public profession of, of, of confession comes out, Lord, and we start to recognize. And for those that are still feeling that, that sin that is holding them down, I pray that they cry out, have mercy upon me, God. Have mercy upon me. I am a sinner. And that right now, you start making that change within their life. 
Father, we thank you for how you move us and you motivate us and you brought us all here together. Lord, this is an awesome showing of who you are and what you can do. So we thank you for that. Lead us in all things. Guide us and direct us. We thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen and amen. amen. Beloved, we have some refreshments next door, some coffee. Stick around. Get to know some of the people here. If this is your first time here, and if you can, uh, just stick around. Just come to know us. I'll, I'll come over there in just a bit. But I want you to know that I'll be up here for a moment if you'd like to come up for a word of prayer, okay? Thank you. Thank you.